1: Hello and welcome to the New Books and Buddhist Studies channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Scott Mitchell, and today we're going to hell and back. Today we're going to be talking with Brian Cuevas, author of Travels in the Netherworld, Popular Buddhist Narratives of Death and the Afterlife in Tibet. Professor Cuevas is looking at a particular kind of Tibetan Buddhist literature called Delok stories. These are stories about folks who have died and unfortunately usually end up going to hell. And while they travel around in the uh, in the Bordeaux or in the afterworld, they meet various, various people, various uh, ghosts, and even zombies, and will eventually have their karma judged by the Lord of Death, the Yama. All of this after seeing lots of suffering before being sent back here to the land of the living, where they extol the virtues of being a good Buddhist, and why it's so important to be a good Buddhist. So, as you can imagine, this is rich, exciting literature, that's not particularly well known outside of Tibet, um, and, but, but more than just this interesting kind of literature about uh, Tibetan Buddhist cosmology, it also says something about what we might call popular religion, and the relationship between popular or common religion and religious practices, and the more orthodox doctrinal literature that one finds in Tibetan Buddhism. So, without further ado, let's get to the interview. So today we're talking with uh, Professor Brian Cuevas um, about his new book, Travels in the Netherworld... Buddhist Popular Narratives of Death and the Afterlife in Tibet. Um, it's a, a very fascinating book about uh, what might be called popular literature and popular death tales in uh, Tibetan Buddhism and Tibetan religion more generally, and I have had the pleasure of, of, of reading it and absorbing it and thinking about uh, the afterlife and uh, all that awaits us, and I'm looking very forward to speaking with, uh, with Brian today. Um, so uh, welcome, Brian. Thanks for joining us.
0: Well, thank you, Scott. Uh, thank you for the nice words there at the beginning.
1: Um, well, you know, it's it's uh, this is one of those topics that I, I, I secretly really enjoy about Buddhism. You know, we don't talk that much about uh, the hell realms in uh, in uh, American right. <laughs> context, right, so right. it's always sort of fun to think about. Um, but before we get into the book um, I just wanted to uh, uh, Find out a bit more about uh, Our guest today and um, how how it is You became interested um, in, in Buddhism Or Buddhist studies I mean um, And also this particular this particular topic
0: Well, okay that's, that's a long story Of course I won't give you the long story But uh, uh, Basically now I'm a historian Of religion, a uh, specialist of uh, Buddhist traditions in pre-modern Tibet I would been interested in uh, Buddhist ideas and uh, Buddhist languages going back really to my late high school years mm. and I was also interested early on in topics like this one here of death and death related practices and I found in Buddhism uh, really fascinating um, Information about that about that topic, and uh, so I sort of pursued those directions in my own graduate work, and ended up doing um, work on death and death-related texts and uh, death-related uh, ritual practices, the history of the uh, materials, particularly the Tibetan Book of the Dead, which was what the topic of my first book. And uh, this book is really just an extension of some of those uh, same themes, Um, death and the hell realms and and the afterlife, and uh, these sorts of, to me, very fascinating and central issues in Buddhism. Um, So in a nutshell, this is, uh, I guess you would say how I have come to this. uh, Some think of somewhat of a morbid topic, (laughs) but I actually see it, as I've said before, as a central uh, topic in in Buddhism. I think really it is perhaps the most important topic in Buddhism, Um, in all Buddhist traditions, not just the Tibetan ones.
1: The sort of central question, uh, the existential question of of life and death. Yeah, Yeah.
0: definitely death and impermanence. I mean, this is what impermanence is—the the the paradigm of impermanence. You know, so. um, But what's interesting in this particular material, which uh, I'll say something about here shortly, but uh, Buddhism uh, in all forms, Tibetan Buddhism, Buddhism more generally. Uh, promises this sort of mastery and control over death. And uh, Buddhism does this in its ideal of liberation from samsara. It also uh, offers this uh, promise of control through its meditations and the ritual practices and so forth. And it's always been my uh, feeling that this is one of Buddhism's main attractions, really, and has been uh, historically in the different cultural regions that that this promise of control over over life and you know mortality and so forth Um, but sometimes and uh, you know most times actually people don't really have control over their (laughs) deaths you know and uh, they're not they're not masters of death Uh, even uh, good Buddhists aren't masters of death and uh, typically are terrified and confused, uh, you know, by the by the thought of death or by the by the experience itself, and that's the death I'm most interested in describing mm-hmm. in this book, uh, which we could call, I guess, an ordinary death or a non-professional death, maybe even a um, unmastered death.
1: Um, right, right. So a yeah. death with a bit more of a, a less control, I guess I could say
0: that's right that's right um but uh yeah anyway it's just uh, an, uh such a central topic death is and um um but I'm not I was not as interested in this uh particular study and focusing on the masters the superheroes mm-hmm. of of the death phenomenon um and uh Specifically, uh, what we're looking at this travels in another world is um, to book about uh, uh, people that, ordinary people, that die and they uh, travel, as you mentioned in the beginning, to hell uh, and to other places. Uh, Buddhist realms, usually the negative realms, <laughs> the scary realms, the, you know, the anxious, uh, these sort of fearful realms. Uh, they travel uh, throughout these regions and uh, have all these experiences, and then they come back to life and report those experiences. And those, those people are called in Tibetan, uh, dalok. And dalok means literally to pass away and return. And uh, so this book is about these people uh, who die, go to hell, come back to life, and then they report their experiences. Hmm. Um, and as I had said before, these are the these are people that aren't in control of the de- of death. They're not the masters of death. They're the ones that are confused and terrified by the experience. And and the stories are actually not. Always so pleasant, <laughs>
1: <You know. laughs> Right, right, right. So, so for for some of our listeners who may not be as uh, uh, familiar with sort of traditional Buddhist cosmology, um, perhaps we can spend a, a quick second sort of talking about about some of those uh, sort of common Buddhist uh, uh, cosmological features that come up in these in these in the stories you're looking at uh, or okay. the literature you're looking at. Um, you know, it, uh, it's it's very. It's well-known that, that Buddhists believe, uh, or that part of Buddhism is this idea of reincarnation and that there's these different realms of rebirth. And, um, so if you could uh, sort of situate these, this literature within that sort of broader context. and then, Okay. And then.
0: Right, right. Well, uh, yes, it is common uh, knowledge. So you could say perhaps that there are six realms in uh, Buddhism. Sometimes it's enumerated as five. It's extended to six realms in the, in the traditional Buddhist cosmology. Uh, the realm of humans uh, that we know well, the realm of uh, gods, and then the demigods, however we want to translate this term, um, that are fighting with the gods. And then you have uh, your lower realms, uh, the uh, ghost realm, and you have the realm of animals, of course, and then the hells. And... uh, I know with my own students uh, that are in my introduction courses to Buddhism, they're often surprised to hear that Buddhism has hell. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And not just one hell, but (laughs) 16 hells. And then 16 hells are surrounded by further hells. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's uh, uh, mind-boggling, the number of hells, (laughs) hot and cold hells. Uh, and they're excruciating, uh, terror, tor- torturous, painful realms. Uh, and students are often surprised to hear about this. They're also, you should, uh, they're also surprised to hear about ghosts. Mm-hmm. That Buddhists believe in ghosts. And that there's an even, there's a, an actual cosmological realm that, uh, that is their own. You know, a ghost mm-hmm. realm. Um, the Arwata is generally translated as a hungry ghost. Uh, in Buddhist cosmology. So, uh, with this particular literature in Tibet, this uh, Dalok literature, uh, the the uh, cosmological framework is certainly situated within that um, uh, very orthodox Buddhist worldview. And so, the the Dalok, these these ordinary folks who are who are, who are dying and then traveling. To these different realms, uh, they do tend to go. They do go down. <laughs> That's generally the, the direction. It's uh, rarely do they go up. Now there are there are cases, and those are not ones that I've focused on in this book. But there are uh, de uh, stories of of those who are a little bit more like the masters of death, the more control uh, controlled uh, yogis who uh, do go to all the different realms, uh, The excuse me, the upper realms and so forth. And, of course, in the um, uh, Mahayana literature, you have uh, bodhisattvas going up and down the different realms. Uh, the Buddha's great disciple, Modgaljana, or Mulian, the great story of him traveling to save his mother in hell. Uh, you have these stories, uh, but again, those are more the the masters of the process, um, and these delok here in Tibet uh, are are not that, and they they fall, and they fall into the into the negative, evil, and the torturous realms, and usually that's hell, <laughs> you know. So they go to hell, <laughs> no, literally.
1: Um, so, uh, the, the book focuses, uh, as you're saying on this, on this, uh, the, the figure, the Delok and the sort of Delok, uh, literature. Um, and, and one of the things I found really interesting that you do is you, you sort of profile, uh, a few different folks, but they come from, from a lot of different backgrounds. Um, you know, here you're saying that they're sort of not, uh, uh, masters of death uh, or professionals, right. so to speak, but, um, you, right. you do seem to have you know, a llama, uh, uh, a uh, housewife and, and these other characters. So, I, I you know, speak to it for a second, just about the sort of range of characters who show up in this literature.
0: Okay, well, that uh, that actually points to uh, one of the what um, of my interests in in, in, the, in the book, and that is, uh, in broader terms, uh, the book deals with popular religion or the, this category, popular Buddhism. Mm. Uh, and more specifically, uh, it's uh, about popular perceptions, uh, popular attitudes about death and the afterlife. And um, by popular, though, I, I try to make this clear throughout the book. I mean common, widely accepted, um, even public in some sense. And and, and the reason that I, I stress the way I'm using this term, popular, as common is um, that this is uh, runs counter to conventional understanding of the word popular, uh, referring to something uh, to uh, to some um, independent category like the non-monastic, the folkloric, uh, illiterate or oral, mm-hmm. or the non-elite uh, category, the lay category, um, and that in traditional uh, understandings. The popular then becomes set up over and against, or under and against, the elite category, and so you have these this conventional binary that that, that distorts uh, Buddhism uh, on the ground mm-hmm. as a, as it's lived, mm-hmm. and uh, so the, the those, that traditional two-tiered model of a of an elite. Buddhism versus a folk Buddhism, let's say, uh, doesn't really tell us much historically about uh, this uh, Buddhist culture, a society, and religion. In this case, Tibet. Um, now, the what I'm doing in in this book is is choosing very specifically um, four persons, four Dalok, um, that I uh, analyze their, their stories, and the four that I choose, uh, as you mentioned, uh, two monks, uh, uh, two men, a monk and a, a, a llama, and two women, both uh, lay women, uh, which represent the traditional two-tiered model of male, female, or monk versus lay person, and I'm trying to show how this literature can get us to, to see the blurring of these conventional distinctions, uh, you know, uh, that cut across these uh, social categories. That these are attitudes, these are perceptions, beliefs. Maybe we could say about death and the afterlife that cut across these social categories: monks, laity, uh, nobles, commoners, male, female, and so forth. So I very uh, consciously chose these four characters uh, to to get at that uh, that sense of popular as being common or widely accepted as sort of cutting across boundaries and so forth.
1: Right, right. I, you know, I have to say I really actually really appreciated that in your comments about popular religion as, as somebody who, who's interested in, in, in popular religion and that dichotomy we make between uh, elite Buddhist um, and and all of the, you know, it seems like oftentimes we assume that the elite Buddhists are, are the more authentic, but um, it's interesting to, to see uh, this wide range of people who are uh, influenced by or accept in 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 some terms these uh, uh, very common understandings of of Buddhism in the afterlife.
0: Right, right, and and they they run counter often to what you might expect. So if it's often uh, it. W- well, this is a literature that hasn't been studied very, um, very much in the field. But um, you do, you would have this sense that, oh yes, this is the kind of thing that you you would expect to find among the lay people, mm-hmm. the the folk, the folk, you know, out right. in the villages and so forth.
1: Ghost but you stories,
0: <laughs> right? Ghost stories. Uh, you know, this is uh, superstitious and whatever. Uh, but you wouldn't find, you wouldn't find, say, a monk having this experience, or a Lama, who is supposedly the elite of the a Buddhist world. Uh, and so that's what I'm actually, uh, so I, I do have a monk and a Lama that are uh, also equally, let's say, uh, confused and terrified <laughs> by the death experience, you know, when they're not really, they're not supposed to be, right. right, right. They,
1: they should know better.
0: <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly and uh but i you know i don't actually abandon the um the usefulness of uh, contrasting dichotomies i mean we, we i think it's it's the way we sort of process information anyway it's so difficult not to have uh, this these binaries mm-hmm. um, but what i'm trying to do what i, I wanted to stress in the book too is not that okay that the dichotomies are in and of themselves not um problematic i mean they, they can be useful the key is not to put too fine a point on those distinctions you know between elites or uh, monk versus layperson. uh and worse yet would be to turn those into actual historical categories uh or oh, yeah. our, our, our actual cultural categories such that there's a the separate culture there's a monk culture and then there's the lay culture and they don't have any any connection to one another um Right. So, I do suggest some um, um, I do suggest a set of contrasting concepts or terms that we 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 might be able to use that do um, acknowledge that, this, that there are distinctions clearly between a monk 's life and a layperson 's life, um, but these are terms that can uh, cut across some social categories for us or some uh, contrasting um, uh, terms that cut across these these typically dichotomized categories. and
1: mm-hmm.
0: Those are uh, what I've uh, suggested. this the idea of a kind of a distinction between a religious practitioners. And here it wouldn't necessarily have to be monks, lamas versus laypersons, but what I'm calling a learned practitioner versus an unlettered or someone who who may not be that versed in the uh intellectual tradition or in the textual tradition Mm. of buddhism Um, because in tibet of course you can have some uh, very high religious practitioners or religious figures or religious authorities let's say that are illiterate Mm. you know um Another another set was the formal-informal contrast between religious ideas, um, this sort of formal understanding of the way the books tell it like it is, this is the way the books tell us it is, and then there's a sort of form, informal understanding that almost all folks have an, un, an informal understanding of some of these. Even the most... The most uh, scholastic of monks, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are some informal um, understandings of some doctrines that are picked up along the way, maybe in conversations in a village home or uh, in a Dharma lecture or something like this, you know. So, uh, anyway, these are some of the issues that are raised on that point that you, you asked, um, mm-hmm. popular, and, and, and the reason that I'm focusing on these four uh, characters uh, in the book.
1: Yeah, well, well let's uh, let's let's follow these characters. Uh, let's let's travel with them for a second. Um, okay. <laughs> uh, so so walk us through what what, what happens when these with these characters. Uh, y- you know, you you point out some some commonalities between them, and there's obviously differences as well. But there seems to be a sort of set pattern of, of these folks who who pass away and they they travel and, and so you know uh, share with our listeners this uh, <laughs> some of these stories.
0: Some of, well, some of the common yeah, yeah elements right. of the stories are. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, you know, I'm just thinking that the imagery is often very such, you know, visual, uh, uh, wonderful ima- you know, dark and frightening. But, right. but <laughs>
0: right. Well, one thing that I do in terms <clears throat> excuse me, I'm sorry. One thing that I, uh, uh, these are uh, rich uh, literary works and they're actually quite long. So mm-hmm. um, I had to make a choice when I was looking at all of these uh, uh, accounts well, to focus on what I saw to be the, uh, the sort of key or the heart of what's going on in the experience. And, and so I did focus on three aspects of the experience that's common to all the Dalok accounts in Tibet. And that's, uh, there is a dying, there's a dying experience, of course, and that's usually uh, narrated and really fine detail <laughs> about the about their dying experience well you know that there's their sense of their body collapsing and and uh, they're losing consciousness there's they're scared they all they always start out getting sick uh and they can't figure out why they're uh ill or that no medicines are working and, and 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 they go into into great detail about their illness and their experience of the dying process and uh, so that's one thing. We can talk more about that here in a moment. is to lay out the three areas. And the other is the journey itself, the travels of the journey to the hell realms uh, and also to the intermediate state between death and rebirth, which in Tibetan is called the uh, Pardo. But um, uh, that and the judgment scene uh, before the Lord of Death, Yama, uh, which is a consistent... Uh, a motif, and all of this literature, um, in which Yama, uh, the person, who will go before the the great judge, and uh, all of his or her uh, sins, uh, evil actions, and so forth. Their karma is laid out, and there's a, uh, a balance of of good and bad deeds, and then the uh, Yama decides whether they should be. Uh, sent further down into the hell realms or if they're sent back home and then of course this case they go back home uh, to preach to everyone that you should not be living a bad life you should be a very good buddhist because i know what it's like in the hell realms um and then the the third uh complex of or the scenario let's say uh, is of course the return and uh that too is described often in some great detail uh, and per very personal detail, just as the dying experience. Uh, the uh, these accounts are, are so personal. This is another thing that's so compelling about them is that that they don't have a generic quality at all about them. Maybe the some of the journeys. Uh, Start to become somewhat generic that's when you get more into the standard buddhist cosmological material which they're drawing from and, mm-hmm. and in some of those uh, long journeys things get somewhat repetitive or or there's a more of a template in place but where things really personal are in the dying accounts and in the return accounts um, Mm-hmm. Uh, though that now that I've just said that I realized that in the journey itself of course they're meeting people that that they that they knew in their past in their previous life or they, they run into uh, old grandparents or something like this mm-hmm. or their old teachers their old llamas or something in the town um, but it's really fascinating I felt the this, this personal quality and um, A real attention to the what would you say the the uh, fragile uh, the fragile sort of psychological or emotional experience of dying and Mm. and uh, what happens when they die Uh, they die and they usually don't know that they're dead Mm. and so there's a moment where they. Trying to figure out why no one is talking to them, no one's asking. or They're asking questions of the people around them, and they're ignoring them, and they get angry because they don't understand why no one's talking to them. And uh, this reminds me of the movie Six Sense, <laughs> which is a great dialogue movie, actually. Uh, <laughs> Uh, where the, uh Bruce willis doesn't know he's dead, you know right. he's walking around and he's having all this interaction with uh, with with dead people, but he doesn't know that they're dead or that he's dead and that's exactly what's what this, these stories are like in the beginning and uh like I said it can be kind of creepy and uh <laughs> uh you know like a horror movie or something you know and uh i, I found that i find that very compelling uh um uh, anyway so then then they go on their trip, and uh, that is never as as you would expect when they go to hell and everything they're not they're not seeing things there that are very pleasant um, and um, they usually uh, encounter people that are of course suffering greatly,
1: hmm.
0: and uh, these uh, people suffering in hell are pleading with the to to uh please you know report back to my family and uh, they 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 need to do something you know <laughs> say some prayers on my behalf or, or or you know help me out down here it's terrible <laughs> you know this kind of thing and uh, uh and then they return and and there's sort of a, uh yeah, another reference to a kind of movie scene i mean it's like a wizard of oz kind of moment at the end they kind of wake up and they're the family's around them and they're like oh my gosh you're back you know mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, anyway so that that's in a nutshell the uh, the um,
1: uh, mm-hmm.
0: journey and the and the, the what you would find in the book if you uh, hope and got into
1: it and, and so the, the character of, of yama the sort of lord of death um i find very just very fascinating i think there's another sort of popular conception of buddhism that's uh, sort of non-judgmental um you know buddhism is a non-judgmental religion and here in the, in the midst of the story is this mm-hmm. uh this this figure who is judging very harshly right, um, right, right. <laughs> which is uh just a, a sort of fascinating turn um so uh you know i i would love to hear more about yama but i'm also um just interested in the the other characters that show up in these um in these stories um i was just flipping through the book again before uh uh, before we spoke today and uh uh, came across a character that i think is is probably going to resonate with american audiences and that is the zombie yeah Um, (laughs) yes yeah um so you know uh just uh, if you can say some more about some of the the sort of uh Supernatural characters that that populate right. these spaces. There's the zombies and the demons and um, and uh, uh, dogs and <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And, and they, the- they just seem rich with symbolism and and and, and meaning for oh yeah the dialogue, but also you know I think in, in terms of Buddhist ideas more generally.
0: Well, definitely, and uh, this 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 kind of uh, material pushes. Opens up these issues. Uh, one of the zombie the issues that in Tibet, uh, zombies they're called rolong. Rolong uh, means literally a standing corpse, um, and there, there there's a connection to the uh, Indian vaitala, hmm. which has often been strangely translated as vampire. I don't know why uh, that. <laughs> put forward as a translation, but the Vaitala, or the Rolong, the, the zombie, is is pretty much what we think of as a zombie. It's a walking corpse. Uh, and the uh, uh, stories of the Rolong, of the zombie, Tibetan zombie, in uh, Tibet, there are, there are several kinds of, of zombies, and uh, there are two basic types of zombies. Uh, uh, are two basic ways that a corpse ends up walking.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: and is um, One is that uh, the corpse can be reanimated by uh, ritual means, by uh, using various tantric uh, practices, tantric techniques. Some might even say certain types of uh, Buddhist magic. Awesome. Mm. Uh, mm. oh.
1: Oh, just when when the when the zombie becomes when the corpse becomes reanimated, it's 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 considered that person is still considered dead, though. Correct? I mean, it's not.
0: Yeah, yeah. They it's, they don't do this to a living person. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they, you take a corpse, usually from the cremation grounds, mm-hmm. and a- animate it through these ritual means. And then, just like you have like with the Haitian uh, notion of the zombie, then the, that that corpse is used for the benefit of the of the yogi. Uh, There are great stories. This is something you find not just in Tibet, but in India and throughout Central Asia, Mongolia, and so forth. The notion that these animated corpses have a a certain kind of um, uh, wish-fulfilling power, and they also are connected to wealth and gold, and and, um, so that they can be of great benefit to the yogi who animates the dead. Now, that's one kind of zombie. What we're getting more in the Delok literature, these are people who are dying, and then they're coming back to life. So what happens in those return-from-death scenes? The uh, Delok comes back to life, but the people around the uh, the person think that, wait a minute, this person, this, our... Daughter, our Lama here was dead, but now he or she is moving. You know, so there's a fear that they've become zombies, mm-hmm. and how is that? that's the other type of zombie in Tibetan literature, and that is the zombie that's animated not by, um, not by yogic means, but by demons, mm. uh, spirits who inhabit or possess. A corpse whose corpses are vulnerable once the consciousness leaves the body the in basic buddhist uh, terms the body is an empty shell uh, and so it's vulnerable to attack how uh, you can inhabit the body so that's uh, one of these um, concerns of fear in the tradition of these animated corpses uh, so that's uh, that, uh, I get into this some um, uh, in the in the book as well. Some of these issues of the zombie beliefs and that, and one in uh, one of the dialogues that I focus on, a woman named Karma Wongsen. She's she's the case that comes back, and and the uh, monk who's watching over her body is uh, terrified <laughs> that she's become a zombie. You know. Uh, and so they have to uh, convince convince everyone. No, no, no. She's back. You know, <laughs> it's her. It's really her. It's not a zombie. Uh, 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 but the issue of ghosts too is another thing you had raised. Mm-hmm. But um, um, were you saying? Did I cut you off? No, no, no. Go ahead. Oh. Um, but that, another one of these, uh, we call, maybe called supernatural components of these stories, uh, the ghosts. And uh, here, we there's a story of the uh, monk, Changchup um, uh, Sange who uh, is mis, misidentified as a, as a not monk, but as a ghost. Um, and uh, there's a scene in which he... Um, is uh, is haunting people and people are thinking he's a ghost and he doesn't know that he's dead and, you know, all this kind of thing. Uh, But this is the... We had talked about the basic cosmological scheme in Buddhism of the preta realm and the ghost realm, hungry ghost realm, and usually in those, those accounts of the hungry ghosts what you what you have are ghosts they're basically just another kind of sentient being that is um, um, racked with with pain and suffering over a great thirst and desire craving uh, uh, but the, you know the standard imagery is of the big bellies and the thin necks, and they're not able to get. Uh, sustenance into their mouths because their mouths are too small, but they're so hungry, they have to get more and more, and, you know, they're called hungry ghosts. But in this case, the ghosts that we experience or that we encounter in the Delok literature are more of the sort that we might think of in our own culture as ghosts. These are people who can't really leave their (laughs) their space or their home. They're kind of attached to their their um, their monastery cell or to their uh, household, and they kind of f- stick around, you know. Hmm. Um, all fascinating stuff from my perspective.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I can just imagine a, a, a Hollywood producer coming up with some great movies.
0: <laughs> yeah, there
1: you go. There you go. <laughs> and, and you know, right to get back to the the popular religion aspect, it's 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 fascinating to see how these these you know in some cases literal ghost stories or um, uh, are are concerning lamas and, and the other sort of uh, as you said sort of elite kind of or at least learned uh, uh, aspects of, of Buddhist culture. Here. Yes, exactly. Uh, so. Exactly it's it's just it is very fascinating <laughs> um now now it seems to me that there's uh, there's also the, the the issue of the bardo that you mentioned um and the mm-hmm. tibetan book of the dead and right. um i i know that the tibetan book of the dead is, is is pretty well known um now outside of tibet um it, how is that different from this this look literature
0: well the tibetan book of the dead will use that title just for ease of mm-hmm. <laughs> communication even though it's uh, it's not uh, correct that there is no such title in Tibet but uh, Tibetan Book of the Dead literature and my first books actually the history of this literature in Tibet itself um, that uh, that literature despite what the um, uh, post English translations of the text uh, have Have reported it is a a fairly rarefied, advanced literature, and uh, it's it's not intended. It's it's liturgical materials, and the 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 texts that are most commonly known as the Tibetan Book of the Dead are actually very high-end meditation manuals. So that's the kind of literature that fits more into that. Uh, category that I started with of the mastery and control over death that uh, put in some promises mm-hmm. and so the book for the dead literature is meant to be used uh, to be employed uh, it's really reminders to those who have already mastered or have had, have come close to mastering uh, the death process. And these texts are there as as a means of reminding the yogi, the meditator, of what they've experienced uh, during life in preparation for death. And so much of that literature, at least the the, the aspects of the literature that's most popular in America and Europe, uh, is more of this advanced kind of elite uh, material. Excuse me now. Of course, you do have that Tibetan Book of the Dead literature, a vast uh, cycle of liturgical materials. Uh, It's not just one book. I mean, it's hundreds of books. And uh, as in any sort of funeral liturgy, uh, tradition, a cycle of funeral liturgies, you have prayers and and a whole uh, mess of things, you know, that, that are incorporated into the tradition so in those cases the prayers and uh, that you would uh that you would use for ordinary funerals and things like that now the day literature we've uh, been uh talking about here uh focus more on the this um uh, how would you say that well one of course the the um obviously the, the issue of the traveling in, to another realm to death or to hell or to, to the intermediate state um, uh, without much control, without any sort of uh, ability to uh, change the situation there's uh, some references in the Dalok literature to some of the more advanced uh, Tibetan Book of the Dead-like instructions that, that people are used to to reading about but that's by and large uh, not not in the Dalai text. This this genre of of Tibetan Buddhist literature is, I I think it would be safe to say it's a it's a moral literature. It's a it's a, a fire and brimstone literature. You know, really it is. I mean, it is telling. It is a literature that is saying, behave. You know, you must be a good Buddhist. You have to be a virtuous person. If you're not a virtuous, if you're not doing virtues, if you're not accumulating merit, if you're not being compassionate, all this, I'm going to tell you now, (laughs) you're in trouble. You're going to hell. And I know what it's like. I've been there and you do not want to be there. Now that's not really the kind of, uh, that's not necessarily the message you get in the so-called Tibetan Book of the Dead literature. Again, that literature is aimed at more advanced practitioners. And so the goal is clearly one of liberation from samsara or Buddhahood, uh, some great soteriological um, accomplishment, Mm. you know. Uh, this literature is not at all about liberation from samsara, or Buddhahood, or any of these grand uh, goals. It really is about uh, living a virtuous life.
1: And so, so uh, this literature then—how uh, uh, do, how, do, how does how do I avoid going to hell? <laughs> I guess this is the basic question here. <laughs>
0: Well, you you follow the uh, the principles of the Buddhist, or the ethical principles of Buddhism: Uh, uh, kindness, uh, compassion. Uh, Of course, also making offerings to the Buddha and to the uh, Dharma, to the monastic community, the Sangha, Uh, the whole merit. Uh, accumulation of merit and the merit system of of uh, transferring all of your good good virtues and blessings for the sake of the suffering of your family or of your friends or or of the uh, deceased monks, de- deceased family, and so forth. And in, in this regard, the literature is much more closely the Staloc literature, much more closely aligned with. Uh, early canonical uh, cycle of text known as the Peṭavatū, the uh, Preta, the, the stories of the departed, which are Pali canon, very popular in Southeast Asia. Uh, these literature about the hungry ghosts, mm-hmm. the Preta's, um, and that is those stories. Uh, they have some similarity to these accounts, but the the where they're almost identical is in their message, their moral message and the merit message Hmm. that they're put forth, that the dead person is suffering, and the reason they're suffering is because, one, their karma has led to their suffering, but also um, their family uh, or their friends, usually their family, have not performed the proper rituals Hmm. and have not given... To the monks so uh, the person suffers so then they're always asking please you know do the right thing (laughs) you know (laughs) make offerings to the to the sangha to the monks Mm -hmm. on my behalf you know so that I don't suffer (laughs) anymore Uh, and this is uh, you know age-old Buddhist uh, principle of merit and the value of the of uh, accumulation of merit for oneself and for others to alleviate suffering um
1: well, that sounds like good yeah. advice <laughs> yeah exactly exactly um, um so so how so uh toward the end of, of your book you, you start talking about storytellers um mm-hmm. and uh it it seems as though this and 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 do correct me if i'm wrong um that the, there's the connection here between how these stories were part of sort of the the lived religion um in tibet um and and these folks who would um who would tell these stories and how these stories got circulated and became as you say popular um um so right. who, who who were these storytellers and how were these stories used um you know, once somebody has this experience of, of traveling to hell right. and back, um, what happens then when they come back and, and become storytellers?
0: Right. <laughs> right, right. Uh, yeah, you know, that that is this uh, 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 aftermath, let's say, of the uh, the experience at the experience in these stories. They uh, come back and they tell their stories, which is what the Yama had told them to do, and what the the this, the dead folk that they meet and uh, all around say, hey, please tell everyone about my sufferings. And so, yes, indeed, they come back and then they begin to teach. Uh, but teach, in this case, is to relay the the moral messages uh, that they had been, uh, that they had received from yam and so mm-hmm. forth. But the literature itself is actually tied very closely to uh, storytelling traditions in Tibet, as you mentioned there. And um, this is indeed how the literature uh, spread and um, uh, develops uh, wide popularity. Um, there, are, there are and continue to be um, the traditions of wandering uh, Dharma teachers or Dharma storytellers that often carry with them Paintings, so scrolls, conchas—you uh, know—painted scrolls of the six realms, for instance, mm-hmm. um, or of episodes from various epic traditions, are these sorts of things. And then they use the the scrolls and um, opportunities as they wander through the streets and through the villages to teach, uh, and uh, in return for their teaching and, and telling good stories the people give them money and so forth like that.
1: And it sounds so, like these, these, these teachers are not, these are both lay lay persons and, and they learned the monastics, correct?
0: Well, that's that's where you start to do see a distinction that, uh, um, going back mm-hmm. to those dichotomies, uh, it, it isn't monks generally that are going to be wandering mm-hmm. around telling the stories. Um, now, llamas uh, are... Lamas are one of these um, nebulous categories, Super. really, in Tibet. I mean, it because yeah, you can have celibate and non-celibate. Uh, they can be monks, but they're not monks. Uh, you know, this one of these, uh, much like in Japan. Uh, these we could call maybe spiritual authorities of some sort. Yeah. Um, these storytellers not, are generally not... Recognized as authorities in some institutional sense, um, they would be minstrels, you know, mm-hmm. in, in, in maybe terms we might know from our own cultures. But um, but they serve very important to purposes in in traditional Tibetan culture. Uh, not only would they tell stories, uh, moral tales like you get these Dalok, they would tell the Dalok stories or they would point out the different realms of the Buddhist cosmology and explain how karma works and so forth and how you don't want to end up in the hell realms and you know this sort of thing. But they also uh, told tales of heroes, epics, epic warriors and uh, other, other great Buddhist figures, uh, Milarepa or some of these great saints, uh, Tibetan saints, um and so this this was a very important component of the society and also very specifically about the daily literature it was a one way in which this stuff was being disseminated and distributed and um mm.
1: it seems like the 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 mechanics almost of how uh, uh, religious ideas become common uh, common knowledge yeah. or popular
0: yeah a certain sort, uh, we could use even the term evangelism in here. I mean, uh, it is kind of evangelistic, and I actually uh, sort of describe some of the sort of evangelistic movements that you get in Tibet beginning in the twelfth, thirteenth century. That is a, a, and in this sense, it's a, it's a, a form of preaching that popular popularizes uh, the Dharma and the, and. Um, and gets the word out right to mm-hmm. the to all the villages and all the people, and and in emotional ways, and in ways that that um, are much more compelling uh, to these folks than than some high end theoretical mm-hmm. or philosophical doctrine, you know, uh, which they they wouldn't be introduced to anyway. I mean, that only took place in very rarefied. Co- uh compartments in a monastery, uh you know, so
1: mm-hmm. yeah, yeah it, so, it definitely sounds like evangelizing you know proselytizing yeah. you know be be a good Buddhist or, or else <laughs> yeah
0: definitely definitely um, and, and there is an aspect of, of Buddhism which uh, is um, missionizing in that way mm-hmm. it's one of the reasons that i I believe that it has been successful uh, and has been able to. Uh, make roots in so many different uh, cultural environments over the centuries. Uh, you know, it's done a good job of of, of getting the message across. You know, uh, in ways that are familiar and palpable to the people. You mm-hmm. know, and dance, they're so like, oh, yes, yes, yes. That that's that's like what uh, that what we we've always believed. Yeah, but this is so much better. Yeah. You know, that. that kind of <laughs>
1: Well, it's it's uh, it's fascinating stuff, and um, I think uh, well well worth the read for for our listeners to pick this book up and, and find out more about uh, the netherworld and 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 you know how you can avoid it. I suppose <laughs> uh, we're coming up to to, the, to our to our time here, and uh, I, I'll get around to asking our, our final traditional question here on the show, and that is uh, just uh, what, what what are you working on now? What can we expect from you uh, to to follow up here um, after we go to hell and back? <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, I uh, it's been some time. I've put I've, I've left the hell realms. Uh, I've moved away from uh, the death and uh, other morbid topics, but um, these days uh, I'm currently working on uh, several projects, but uh the main focus of the of these projects are on uh, magic and sorcery, what is sorcery and uh, ritual magic. And I'm uh, particularly focusing on the political uses of Tibetan uh, Buddhist ritual magic sorcery uh, in the centuries that led up to um, the establishment of the office of Dalai Lama in the 17th century. Mm. Um, so I'm focusing here on the one, the history of Tibetan of this Tibetan Buddhist sorcery, the category. Can we speak in those terms? One, I want to get into the issues of whether we we can reevaluate this category, which is uh, now sort of out of fashion uh, for good reason, but but uh, but maybe not. I mean, reassess this category of magic as a useful um, analytical term. Uh, How would we describe this? But even whatever terms we would use, there's this uh, this sort of uh, ritual of political action, uh, aggressive Mm -hmm. ritual that's aimed at uh, silencing your enemies Mm -hmm. or establishing uh, political power. And uh, it's a very important uh, component of the Tibetan um, history, Tibetan Buddhist history and certainly is at the heart of the formation of the centralized tibetan state in the 17th century and the fifth dalai lama the 17th century very uh, influential to the great fifth uh, was involved in in these sorts of rituals quite pervasively <laughs> uh, in, in dealing with uh, perceived enemies of of the government hmm. Yeah, so I'm, I'm looking into this, uh, also focusing on some of the history of some of the main practitioners, some of the great sorcerers, Buddhist sorcerers of Tibet, uh, one in particular who I'm uh, now working on, a bi- uh, translation of a very controversial biography of the 11th century uh, Buddhist sorcerer named Ra Lotsawa. Tsawa, hmm. uh, so that... Hopefully, it'll be coming out in the next few years. Um, so this this is what I'm working on now. It's like I say. It's a, <laughs> I, I mean, I guess there's some connections to our. They say if there's still a little bit of a dark streak <laughs> in in that. Um, well, I mean, uh, to,
1: you know, it sounds like fascinating, uh, you know, extra history that we don't, we don't often hear about. You know, everyone knows the Dalai Lama and, and, uh, and, you know, but I think many people don't really know the full history of Tibet. And to know that history from this, this side of ritual or magic is uh, right, right. important, fascinating stuff. Looking forward to. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, thank you, thank you.
0: And you have to be careful with uh, with those with those terms. You don't want to uh, often Tibet has always been the paradigm, and mm-hmm. often in a negative way as the magic realm, you know, mm-hmm. or something. Just the flying llamas and these kinds of things. So uh, it's important to be uh, responsible and critically sensitive to the use of some of these terms. But but. Uh, There's certainly some, uh, I think there's some cause for reevaluating those terms and maybe bringing some of them back into use for understanding some of these practices, um, which are, as I said, are pervasive in Tibetan history and actually pervasive throughout much of the northern Buddhist world. I mean, Mm -hmm. I know in Japan these kinds of activities are... A lot of literature
1: on that. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, a lot of. The, I feel like there's lots of crossover here. There's the, the storytellers in Japan and many rituals for the the, the, the stage or the empire. So um, yeah, so yeah. Great, great stuff. Um, well, well, thank, thank you again for for, you. for chatting with us today. I'm uh, uh, highly recommend well, your you. book and looking forward to seeing more from you.
0: Well, I appreciate the opportunity and thank you again. And uh, take care, Scott.
1: Thanks a lot. Scott. Thank you. You've been listening to the New Books and Buddhist Studies channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Scott Mitchell, and we've been talking with Brian Cuevas and his new book, Travels in the Netherworld, Buddhist Popular Narratives of Death and the Afterlife in Tibet, which is going to be released in paperback this fall from Oxford University Press. Thanks for listening.